Welcome to the 12th episode of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I produce work in applied ethics, especially sexual ethics, and I have been a practicing member of the polyamorous community for roughly 10 years. And I am Sarah Lucas. I am a student at a local university studying consensual non-monogamy and child-rearing, and I have been polyamorous for a little over 18 months. And I'm Mandy Conant. I'm the director of Atlanta Poly Weekend, and I have been practicing polyamory for 17 years now. Today's episode is about the difficulty in communication, but also, at least for me, it's a chance to more completely explain the view of communication that I'm normally working from. I think if you've been listening to this podcast, you've heard hints and pieces and bits of it where I say, well, it's not really words, or it doesn't really have meaning, or you can't really rely on it. And uh, So I, I'd like to clarify the the general space that I'm working in and then also talk about the other half of this is in one of the earlier podcasts someone I think uh, Mandy said something like you know well the answer is just communication and my thought was yeah but like that's really hard though yeah I make it sound so easy yes <laughs> <laughs> like I'll oh, just communicate better and it will work and I'm like well I'll... duh yeah <laughs> uh, if they could so a little bit about philosophy of language, and I will spare everybody all of the different steps of how I got where I ended up, but the sort of last best philosophical theories that I've read about language come from a naturalistic perspective. Naturalistic in philosophy just means that you can study it. Mm -hmm. So it's actually evidence permeable. And this is opposed by something like analytic, which is traditionally the kind of philosophy where you can sit and just think about something and try and decide if you know the answer or not in your own mind. Like, so Cartesian philosophy. So like, have you ever heard, I think, therefore I am? That's supposed to be something that you can prove by just sitting around doing meditations. And it is not considered naturalistic philosophy because it's supposed to be something you can figure out in your own head. So like math is often considered non-naturalistic philosophy. Like you can prove 2 plus 2 equals 4 by just sitting there and thinking about it. You don't actually have to go out and experience 2 plus 2 equals 4 is the claim. This idea of language contradicts what I think most people think of as language, which is you think of language as you're trying to communicate something to another person and that what you're saying is about what you intend to say or maybe about what the definition of the word is or maybe about how people usually use words. This response actually says no, that language exists in a physical reality and it thinks about language as being a physical action. Mm -hmm. Similar to if I reached out and flipped off a light switch to turn off a light, I might say something like, would you turn off the light switch in order to turn off the light? And this view of language registers that as an action to turn off a light switch, just as much as reaching out to turn off a light switch would be. Mm -hmm. So on this view, individual words are actually looked at as being evolved. So the best metaphor for language is that it evolves the same way that other features of human uh, animals or humans specifically evolve. So language uses are subject to evolutionary pressures. Do they achieve results? Do they increase your flourishing or do they diminish your flourishing over time? A lot of the language I'm here using, by the way, is borrowed from a book called Language, Thought, and Other Biological Categories by Ruth Garrett Milliken. So the term we're going to use there is language is given its meaning by the function performed by a critical mass of the word usages. And that's very complex language, and it's very complex on purpose. It's complex on purpose because critical mass does not mean preponderance or most of the time. Because a lot of times people say, what does a word mean? And we actually, linguists will say, well, what do people use it to mean? Or they'll say, what do most people use it to mean? And this is how you get things like a Webster's Dictionary definition, right? So Webster's will write down what the majority of people in an area mean when they say a word as its definitions. Mm -hmm. But this is going to say that words as physical things in the world are trying to accomplish some function or other, although it may not be conscious on the part of the common users, but it has function conscious or unconscious that consistently makes using the word valuable. When the word performs that function a critical mass of the time, which means enough to be useful, that word continues to hold that meaning. Mm -hmm. And that meaning has to be important enough, that value has to be important enough that it creates, and this is another term from her book, a, a sort of a center of mass that causes the definition of that term to drift back towards that center over time. So let me give you an example uh, of the word version of that and sort of a biological equivalent to that. Starting with the biological equivalent, because I think it makes the metaphor easier, think about sexual gametes, so eggs and sperm. If you said the function of eggs and sperm is to procreate, 
you wouldn't be able to get that function from what happens to the average egg and sperm. 99.9% .9 of eggs just die. 99.9 .9 ad infinitum for like billions of places of sperm just die. My whole life of like the 39 billion sperm I'm supposed to have produced, one of them procreated. So you couldn't look at the average thing that a sperm does to find the, what a sperm is for. Mm -hmm. You have to look at what the critical mass is, which is the important function. And as long as sperm sometimes procreates children, it's a useful evolutionary feature. And if it doesn't do that, then it's not a useful evolutionary feature anymore because that's its center of math, that's its actual function. And and so words are going to be similar to that. So if a word often fails to accomplish the goal you want, but it accomplishes it enough and powerfully enough, you're going to continue using that word. We've often discussed how confusing words like I love you are. So I love you as a sense of set of group of words actually makes a lot more sense in this context because part of the reason finding its meaning is confusing is it may not even have one. It may actually just have a function. The function of I love you, as far as I can tell, is to boost bonding and provoke a strong emotional reaction in the person you're saying it to. Hmm. Hopefully a bonding reaction. Now granted, now that I'm in a long-term stable relationship, most of the time I say I love you, I think it actually works to accomplish those functions. But when I was younger and was just dating and had never had a long-term relationship, the vast majority of the times I said that phrase, it did not accomplish that function and just failed miserably. But the times it did, it caused really good outcomes, AKA dating mm -hmm. and sex. <laughs> and bonding. <laughs> so it was worth continuing to say those words, even though they usually failed to perform their function because they perform at a critical mass of the time. Okay. That is how I love you continues on in the common dialect because it's so powerful and so valuable and the function is achieved that many failed attempts are worth a single successful utterance. All right. The sense of like the first time you tell someone you love them and it works. Yeah. Your claim is that the function is to, to get some sort of response from the person that hears it. In this theory of language, function is sort of is standing in for whichever major function creates the center of mass of a grouping of words that continues to draw its meaning back to the same space, not all the things it can be used for, right? So presumably the human hand evolved the function for grasping objects, but not for like typing or using a mouse or being a place to have tattoos or where you write reminders so you know what to do at the end of the day. And yet all of those are very useful functions of your hand that are not part of its evolved or core function. Right? The reason humans continue to have hands, at least for now, is not keyboards. Uh, it might be one day. <laughs> keyboards it's become completely so important. masturbating, for the record. Uh, right, right. <laughs> uh, but it's used for many other functions. I'm not necessarily trying to make claims about what I for sure think those words mean. I was more saying maybe the reason we can't nail down the definition of that is because it has this function that defies, in a sense, definition. But I do think the, the evolved function of language is to provoke responses, either obvious or not obvious, but responses. Mm. Because language that provokes no responses in other people is useless language right. in an evolutionary sense. Yeah. Right, you might as well be talking to a wall. Right. Right. Yeah. If you're not evoking a response. Or grunting. I do think, you know, as humans, and because we have this higher level of consciousness, which is what existentialism is about, it's about when you jump off from being a purely evolved being into being a self-forming being, is you know, the existentialist view of meaning and personality and who you are. So inside of that, there's going to be a lot of functions for saying I love you. Like I might just be saying it to myself to reify it to myself. But I could also be doing it there still to increase bonding, but the, the intended listener could be me. Because we know that when you talk to yourself, it has powerful impacts, changing your own brave wave pattern, reminding you of right. things. Right. You're still trying to elicit a response from yourself. Right. From a listener. It's just that the intended listener is now me. Right. But yeah, I think that the, the point of saying I love you is to elicit a bonding response or a deep emotional response from the intended listener would be my best sort of sense at the function of I love you. Okay. On that view of language, the idea then would be that the way that we learn words, they're at a conscious or subconscious level, is by watching them have their effect in the world. Yeah. Toddlers are a wonderful example of that, actually. My son, for instance, he definitely is not using language to communicate mm -hmm. yet. Here I mean this in the sense people normally say language is meant to communicate, which is that people will say things like, well, I talk so that you will know what I'm thinking, versus I talk to get certain responses out of you, or certain outcomes out of you, which is, I think, the more honest thing, but I think it's considered manipulative in our culture to say something yeah. like that. I think it's true, though. Yeah, I, I agree. It is definitely. It, it's definitely yeah. true. 
And it's not bad. And this just goes back to I'm against judgment, right? right. But it's not bad. It's just I true. I think that not all manipulation is bad because every pretty much everything we do is a some form of a manipulation. It's just whether or not we're abusing the other person or abusing different functions in life and such that it becomes bad. Sure. Right. Whether it's malicious or not. Precisely. Well, and here I'm using the word manipulation to include the valence of malicious. I think people will say like, I guided this person versus I manipulated this person to mean basically the same thing, but depending on whether or not they think it was positive or negative right. and if it was controlling <laughs> or self-serving. Yeah. So I think people don't generally say manipulative like they mean I manipulated the metal to get the result I wanted. They don't usually say I manipulated the person to get the result I wanted and not mean it in like a malicious way. Yeah. And I manipulated the situation, way. not the yeah. people in it. <laughs> yeah, I manipulated the I've situation. I've gotten that one before. I manipulated the situation. Sure. <laughs> we do know that young children don't have a theory of mind. And what a theory of mind means is understanding that other people have positions and opinions that are separate from yours. Yes. Right, yeah, they're pretty egocentric until a certain age. I can't remember what age that is. But... Well, not, not even egocentric. A child below five literally believes that you can see what it can see and only that. Oh, okay. I see what you're and, saying. And doesn't understand that you have literally a physically different perspective. So, like, if you've ever been in the car with a toddler and they say give me that toy and you're looking for because you're driving you say what toy and they say that toy that toy and you eventually realize they're pointing at a toy behind your seat mm -hmm. and you go how could i see that the the child cannot understand that you're seeing different things than it is seeing my teenagers right. still do that can i well, get that that's a, that's a that? different issue <laughs> But the children are mentally incapable of knowing that there's a difference. But my, yet my child talks to me. He talks to me because he, he wants to accomplish certain things. He wants that drink, and I can get it for him. He wants to get up on the counter. And so he's not looking for the words to communicate his wishes. He's looking for the words that will achieve the outcome. And one of the most clear versions of this, if you're still in doubt, is that he has very quickly learned certain buzzwords that are, to some extent, get-out-of-jail-free cards that he will apply to anything. So he has learned that if he says, go pee, I will stop whatever I'm doing and take mm -hmm. him to the bathroom. So if he's trying to get out of, like, dinner, and I'm like, no, we're going to have dinner, and he's bored, eventually he'll go, go pee, even if he's just <laughs> peed recently, because it will get him out of that chair, and it will get into the bathroom, and it'll give him a chance to try and escape and get to other locations. But it's not about communicating to me his need to, ba to use the bathroom or not. It's about getting me to respond in the way that he wants. He's manipulating you. And, 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 and this is when we're building our core language skills. So, right, right, so people that think, well, our language is about communicating with each other and not directing other people's behaviors. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, but in false. all of the core language building years, the only goal that person has is in directing behaviors. Mm -hmm. So the idea that suddenly at a later stage, you take that information that you learn to direct behaviors and redirect it purely for communicatory purposes is ridiculous. Now, granted, sometimes the physical effect I'm looking to have on the world is communicating what's going on inside my head. Mm -hmm. That's an adult desire, mm -hmm. I think. But it's yeah, not the majority of times we use language. Another sort of similar proof to that is in a lot of studies where we, we ask people to debate, people will tend to stop debating not when they agree, but when they agree on the outcome. Okay. Like one of my friends, I was talking to this this person who is sort of fundamentalist Christian, like one of my friend's moms. I started with, I think we should be worried about global warming and be trying to save the environment, which in my experience, most fundamentalist Christians don't agree with. And mm -hmm. she was like, I completely agree. And I was like, wait, what? And she goes, yeah. it says in the Bible that God gave us the care of the world, and so it's our job to take care of it, and that includes saving it from global warming and protecting it from pollution. Oh, cool. And I am like, literally nothing about what you said can I take seriously, but I agree with your conclusion, so I'm happy. Right. We're done. Yeah. We're now both trying to recycle and voting for people that have green agendas. That's all I wanted from you. <laughs> I did not actually want to replicate my informational state in your. I don't hear how you yeah. got like, there as long as you got goal. there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's most conversations. I mean, you know, again, people we love, and sometimes it's just interesting to know what's going on in someone's head. So sometimes you are trying to communicate, but it's not the vast majority of communication. And it's not even what, what we're doing. This podcast's goal is to help you have better relationships and have better emotional outcomes and behave more ethically, not to replicate our information. If you take the information and that's how you get there, that's great. But if you just take the practices that we suggest and apply them and get there, we're still happy. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Our goal is just to, to help as many people live happier, healthier, more ethical lives as possible. It doesn't matter to us how you got there. Right. So the first thing that comes to mind when you when you say the whole elicit a response, and that's kind of how our core language is developed in that first five years, and that it doesn't just go away. The first thing that I think about is when you go to communicate with a partner and you're communicating just to communicate. Just because you need to say things out loud, you're, you're not trying to so much as elicit a reaction, a response, or or an answer. You're just communicating to say it. Like you're just you're bitching about your day, mm-hmm. and your partner wants to fix it. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know how they want they they okay. What can I do to fix it? Do you think that's kind of maybe the other end of that, where we're kind of taught? to give a, a reaction or a response or a, you know what I'm saying? Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, some of that could be cultural baggage. And I think some of it may just be an unintended side effect. So we do also know that when you tell a story, that story loses some of its emotional resonance inside of you. Mm-hmm. So the universal desire to want to come home and bitch about having a bad day actually lowers the emotional load you're carrying so that you're in less pain. Right. I'm not talking about the bitching itself. I'm talking about... No, yeah. no, nor, nor am I. Oh, okay. But so, so you, the speaker, are speaking with the goal of... Release. Hurting less. Yeah. Which is an evolved function. Yeah, just release. Just, just to get right. some of it off your shoulders. But all of those words are words that exist because they cause reactions in other people. And your partner is sitting there being bombarded with words that are functionally evolved to provoke reactions. Right. That's what I'm saying is like, maybe is that the other side of it? I do think that's why that happens. I think that at the end, you've been hit by all these words that are designed to create reactions and the other person didn't need a reaction. They just needed to, to explain what was going on with them. And if you don't know that's what's going on in order to sort of circumvent your desire to respond to it, it's going to cause that, well, like, I got to get out. I got to fix this. I got to save you from this problem. I got to help you. I have to intervene. Sort of like the equivalent to if I came in a room and said something like, hey, turn on that light. And then you turn on the light. And I was like, damn it, why'd you turn that light on? I didn't want it on. Right. I gave you a bunch of words that you should could act upon that are meant to elicit a response and didn't cause you to act upon it. Yeah. And you can, you know, and I've I've seen a lot of people use the simple strategy of saying, "Hey, I need to tell this story because I need the story to be told, but I don't want you to try and fix it. I don't want you to like I I'm doing this because I need to say it and I need to share it, but I don't want you to act upon it." Right. And yeah. I feel like um, that's... And, and that, that, Go ahead. Sorry, Michael. Well, that has varying levels of success, which is maybe what you're going to say. But I feel like that'd be more like the equivalent of if I came into a room and said, don't act on the next thing I say, turn on the light. Because then the light would probably not go on. Chances are still sometimes some people would still turn the light on. <laughs> but yeah. a lot of people would be like, okay, I understood that context. It was confusing to me, but I understood it. So I think right. it's also, like, with this question, Mandy, I think it's I think it's cool. Honestly, I didn't put two and two together until you just said, Michael, that there is an emotional release when we tell a story. Um, and so I think it's great to know that when someone comes to you and they're bitching about something, that they, it could be that they want a solution, or it could be just that the solution is they need to bitch, that it they need that emotional release. So I think that that's something that we can, I personally will take away from this conversation, this particular episode, is that sometimes people just, that that is the function of it. I always ask that question. I always ask that question when people bitch at me. That's not a bad the, I mean, like To me, for me, right. you know, at the end, I go, hey, did you want me to help with this? Or is this to help share so that you can feel better and have a connection with me <laughs> right. before I offer solutions. When we have that problem, I mean, I, I know I do sometimes have that problem, you know, with my partners and communicating with my partners where mm-hmm. I don't prelude the, the conversation with, hey, I just need to kind of release here. So if you could listen, that would rock. I don't need you to white knight me. I just need you to listen. And I sometimes don't even want a response from you. I don't like, I don't even want your opinion on it. I just want you to listen. Right. That's right. <laughs> so, right. you know, and like that's, that's it. True. And I never even thought about the whole, you know, words trying to elicit a response instead of trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out, like when you, when we speak, 
we're really asking for things as opposed to telling people things. Right. Most of the right. time. But, but of course, like anything else, if it is a really good evolved function. So, you know, speech obviously did not evolve to allow you to blow off emotional resonance, partly because most of the emotional resonance you would need to blow off eventually was generated by speech. Is that people saying mean, salty things to you that make you hurt and make you think about it a long time? Like, you don't need to tell someone the story about getting chased by a lion. Like, you will because it's cool, but that <laughs> has its own whole adrenaline, stress, right. built-in release, built-in success system. So the kind of things that we release through talking tend to be the kind of stresses that we generate through talking. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's an adaptive behavior, but not necessarily an evolved behavior. And it may be one that then got more evolved over time because of its value, but it's certainly not the way that the words have evolved because... It doesn't matter what words you use to describe that event. You just have to describe what happened to you in some way in order to lower the power of that event over you. Right. Um, but so that can't get incorporated into those words because it's non-specific to those words. It's any words. Which also, by the way, another useful application of this in polyamory or non-monogamy is if this is the reason why people tell more negative stories about people they care about than positive stories. Because even though most people don't know this consciously, we understand it unconsciously, which is if you've ever had the thought, I don't want to share this really special thing that happened with my partner it's just for us it's actually a way of maintaining its emotional potency it makes sense that when you share that story and when you tell that story it drains it mm -hmm. huh. so if you're in a relationship and you've ever had the experience that you only tell shitty stories about your partner even though you think they're amazing to your friends and they're all like your partner is terrible he only does bad things <laughs> it's because you're performing this ritual to lower the emotional stress of the times you do clash but not doing this to lower the emotional benefit of being with them. The negative things are the only things you need to release. Correct. So oh, yeah. that's what right. you release as opposed to the positive things, which you want to keep. You want to keep that, that level of intimacy and feeling with them. Right. And then this becomes very problematic in poly relationships often because your other confidence can often be your partner's. And so you get in that really common story where you go to your partner and go, man, my partner did this, they did this, they did this. And then the next day you're back with them and you're happy and your partner's really resentful because why are you with these people who are just jerks? And then they feel like they're doing all this emotional labor to help you fix this problem. And really all you need them to do is listen. You don't need them to do any of that other emotional labor. You need them to physically just be there while you talk. And here's another place that preferencing can help. You can come in and say, I want you to know this partner is really great. I'm really enjoying being with them. But I had a specific event. And the only way I know to release that emotional pressure is to discuss it with you. And I would like to discuss it with you. Are you equipped to handle that? And then can you understand that that's not a reflection on my general sense of this partner? And if you have partners that can do that, that's great. And if they have partners that can't do that, you need to know that to not tell them. Yeah, right. I have, I'm lucky that my partners know each other well. So mm -hmm. when I, I, and I try really hard not to bitch to partners about other partners, except for my two nesting partners, which I do bitch at the other one about the other one. <laughs> um, because sure. they're my best friends as well. So, yeah. um, but when they, know, and they know each other, so it grounds the story. Right. right. So like I said, you know, luckily they do know each other so well that they'll defend each other. So, yeah, sure. you know, I'll, I'll bitch to Ryan about Jerry and then Ryan will go, but you know, don't forget he's this amazing and that amazing and yeah. he does all these things great. And I'm sure he didn't mean to do this then and yada, yada. So they, it, it's actually kind of aggravating in the situation because you're like, I don't want you to freaking defend him. I want yeah. you to listen to me. <laughs> that, that was what I was going to say. I was going to say that that can actually be equally problematic if what you're seeking is the ability to tell that story to relieve that pressure. Right. Right. The other person constantly interrupting your version of the story to tell you the other person probably didn't do that can just completely short circuit the effort that you're making to relieve the emotional pressure that you have so that you can move past them. And my cohabitating partners are really good about doing that whole like, hey, I just want you to listen. They'll just mm -hmm. at the end, they'll just oh, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. And, you know, do you want to get mm -hmm. ice cream? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think being able to preface a conversation with a, hey, I just want you to listen to this right now is quite a skill. I know personally, if I get upset about something and I want to bitch, I'm just like, I am angry about this, this and this and this and grr. And I have a hard time just like stopping for a minute and saying, okay, all right, 
Now, if I tell this all to you, you're going to find a solution and that's not what I want. Okay, here's what I need to say to you before I start saying my bitching stuff. Well, and that is also why if you are listening to this and your partners don't listen to this, it's good to have your partners listen to the same thing because the person who's getting bitched to will be the person who's in the state of mind to recognize what's happening. Yes. Because mm-hmm. you, you will be in the fight or flight state of mind when this is going on. This is why it's so important to have dialogues with your partners so that you have both have the same behavioral kit available to you for these sorts of situations right because if you both have this and then you start doing that and they go can i interrupt you for one second and you say yeah and you say all right before you go further can i ask are you just doing x or do you need solutions and weigh-ins and i want to know now because if i don't know that you're you know releasing this emotional valence and i listen to the whole story i'm going to get emotionally involved and angry and want to fix the problem so can you just tell me which of these two things it is? That will kick you right out of your fight or flight mode so that you can answer that question and then go right back to complaining and actually know what you're doing. And the more both of you do that, like, again, like we talked about this. Oh, we didn't. We talked about this last episode, <laughs> but I had to cut it for time. The more you do something, the more it becomes a habit. So once mm-hmm. at the beginning, it's only like one out of like 10, 20, 30, 40 times you remember. But it only takes you remembering like once or twice and it being really valuable to stick in your memory so that the next time it comes back and eventually it'll be an almost all the time thing it'll just be how you how you live the sea you swim in so to speak mm-hmm. now sarah have you ever gone in and been like going to bitch and you're just like blah and then they try and they do try to fix it and you're like shut up i didn't want you to fix it you just i just want you to listen can't you just listen to me then, <laughs> now you have a fight with two partners <laughs> yeah uh I don't. Which I is don't why know that, that, I... that skill is so good to learn up front. Like, okay, yeah. this with this is what this is. I'm gonna go ahead and thank you for listening, and here I go. I guess I've been <laughs> been. I don't know. There's been a couple times where I've had people offer solutions, but typically when I bitch to someone, I'm looking for a solution. I'm just weird like that. I don't. Every now and then I bitch just to bitch, and then. Um, I like, I thank the person, like, thank you for listening to me. I apologize for venting and bitching because I apologize for existing sometimes, but, um, for the most part, (laughs) I know, shut up. Um, for the most part part, though, I am looking for solutions when I bitch about something. I am not one to really get angry very frequently. And I'm not saying that like most people do. It's just like when I, when I bitch about something, I'm typically looking for a solution. So I don't know. I feel like I don't have a whole lot of relevant information on that. Yeah. I'm just a bitcher. It's good. I think it's very common. I don't know a lot of people who do not from time to time that are my, you know, that in my close circle come to me and just tell a story that they're angry about and not really be looking for solutions. Well, and most people, once they've calmed down, are at least interested also in solutions, sort of. I'll take feedback for sure after I've calmed down, yeah. Right, yeah, Yeah. I agree with that. And I also think it's an issue of the sort of toxic masculine environment that we live in, that women, by and large, are consistently, Mandy, you hit the nail on the head with the white knight, subjected to, oh, here are the solutions. And what really happens even, I think, more commonly for people you get mad at is they suggest really obvious things. Right, like I didn't think of that. Because men will act like women haven't thought of something (laughs) really basic yeah but uh right but but so i think i think you do see that complaint more from women although i definitely also have that which is i have a very strong need to talk through my frustrations and people start trying to give me solutions and i have a combination of that you don't think i thought of that uh frustration right because i'm in a high emotional state anyway the reason i'm telling you this is to lower my emotional state and then you're engaging in it Mm -hmm. and then secondly i just need i don't want to be interrupted i'm trying to finish this story to get it out of me like i've got this sort of poison inside of me and i want to get it out so i'm not breathing it anymore (laughs) right right yes the whole white knight thing it drives me nuts I'll tell you if I need to be white knighted. Like, I'll tell you, which is very rare that I need to be, like, swooped in on. Most of the time, it's just so I can vent because I'm a talker. I'm not a writer. I talk. Mm -hmm. So I wish I could blog and do that or even vlog, get it out that way. But I just, I can't. So I'm a talker. I just need to say it out loud without being videotaped. (laughs) Like, I just need to talk through it. And that's um, another layer that's going on in the same sorts of discussions. So there's releasing the emotional resonance, but there's also going back to talking where you were actually the audience. I am like Mandy, I don't develop thoughts without talking them out. So once I go and I read all these books, I go and trouble my poor friends and they have to listen to my theories about linguistic <laughs> philosophy 
<laughs> because it's the only way for me to work through it, which is why Mandy, as she mentioned in previous episodes, gets things to me like, oh my god, this could be a problem. And then I start writing to her because I have to have that discussion to think through it. And it's kind of bad, actually. I've gotten to the point where I'm, old. yeah, and it's one you can preference when you can't. Because I used to do that. And people felt really sort of like, I don't think you actually want my opinion on this. You just want to tell me this for three hours <laughs> while you while you decide the answer. And then as I got older, I was like, that actually is what I want to do. Right. And so now I can say, I need to do this for my work, from from what I need. Is this something that you a topic you'd be interested in hearing me work through? Mm-hmm. Is this a topic you'd be happy to work through? And like with the other scenario, if you have a really good suggestion and you wait for a very big downtime so you're not interrupting a core part of my thought development to, to tell me your, your input, I'm happy to have it. But for the most part, I'm actually talking to myself, and like Mandy, the authenticity of another person is somehow required. Mm-hmm. If there's not another mm-hmm. human being there, I can't just talk to the air to develop my thoughts. Yeah. And I have a friend that does. I have a friend that speaks to himself to develop his thoughts, and he and he's fine with it. And I don't know how he does it. So I'll come over to his house, and he'll just be sitting in a corner being like, but then we go over there, and then we do this, and then I'm like, I don't. See, that's totally and it's really me. healthy. There's, a lot, <laughs> there's so much great psychological research. If you can do that, like, that's a great gift. But I can't do that. Yeah. But even at work, like if I've got a problem at work, if I call somebody over and be like, okay, I'm trying to figure this out. So, and if, and like I try to explain it to them, I can usually figure it out right. while I'm explaining it to them. But it's almost like I, I need somebody else. Like they don't even usually have to say anything. They just have to stand there and listen to yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> And I have theories of that. I don't have anything concrete because it doesn't really matter how or why that happens, but that's just a well-documented phenomenon. So that's the third thing, which is I could be talking to you both to lower my pain, but also so I can find the solution. And in both of those cases, I do not want you to tell me your solution because I have lost so many good thoughts right before I had them where it was completely coming together and someone was like, I know the answer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I hate you. <laughs> I know you're here listening to me and you're my good friend and I love you. But I hate. <laughs> I love that between the three of us, this is a good example of the idea that everybody communicates differently and thinks about things differently and has to work through things differently. And that's a part of the reason why communication is so damn hard because everyone does it differently. Yes. I know at least two people whose emotional filter does not allow them, no matter how many times you tell them, to not act on the action quality of words. So that when you go to them and you say, hey, I'm here just to vent, they become motivated Mm -hmm. by the words that you've said to do the things that you've said, even with the context that you don't really mean the things that you're going to say next. This is why everybody, I think, has met at least one person that, like, doesn't, like, don't vent to me. And you're like, that's so unfair. Why don't you want me to do that? But that person probably has a problem not taking the action quality of the word, the function of the word, and applying it. So they're like a raw nerve in that context. Well, it's hard to do. Mm, Yeah. It's hard to do with partners that you care about. I mean, not that you don't care about partners, other partners, but it's hard to do with your partners because you care about them and you know they're being... Are you laughing at me? (laughs) No, no, no. I was was thinking thinking here is where where Sarah was perfectly right because, because I don't have a problem doing that at all. And so it's great that you're like, that's just a hard thing to do. And I'm like, and here is the person in our group who has the most trouble with it. Because <laughs> Sarah nodded along and was like, oh, that's weird or interesting or surprising when I said there's people that can't do that. And I also think it's not hard to not do that. And you were like, that's hard. And of course, it, well, it is because I'm a protective person. I'm super protective sure. of the people mm-hmm. I care about. But I don't think that's just about protectiveness. I think that's also about just who you are as far as the way that words affect your neurochemistry. Right. Because I would call myself quite protective, but I would also say that I recognize it in that context especially the person opened with i just need to do this relieve uh, emotional pressure and i want to work through this because it's going to be better for me that if i interfered it would actually be worse for them right because it does put a little bit of stress on me right Makes sense yeah my point is that that's important to know you need yeah. to know your own limit mm-hmm. where you can actually do that where it's healthy for you to do that for your partner and where you go okay i have reached my healthy practical limit for today and i would love to listen to you but maybe try tomorrow or maybe talk to one of your other friends right because i do think and this goes back to sort of when we bring toxic monogamy beliefs into polyamory that we have the sense that your partner or partner should be everything to you mm-hmm. and so you're like well i should be able to tell you about any number of horrible things that happened to me Mm-mm. oh toxic monogamy you you can't no and especially with other partners yeah sure like there's sometimes where your partners don't want to hear about the shitty sex uh, you yeah. had like <laughs> 
Go vent to your girlfriend about that. <laughs> little little caveat for this. None of the things that we're talking about in communication generally are meant to preclude any of the existing consent contracts you have. Oh, yes. That's a good point. Right. right. So we keep saying things like talking to a partner about a partner, but I have had partners that said, talk to them about whatever you want, do whatever you want, even bitch if you want. doesn't matter to me. Whatever is healthy for you, go ahead and do. And I've had partners that are like, I don't want you to talk about sex with me with yeah. a different partner, and then I right. respect that. So I, I want to tell you guys, we're assuming that we're respecting all those values. Yes, please. First and foremost. Yes. Yeah. That we just threw out there were things like, oh, well, they don't want to hear about that. So if I have a partner that says, I don't want to hear about sex with other partners, obviously I'm going to respect that before I get into my own emotional right. needs. Right. So this is just the information about how we communicate and then sort of some of the secondary and tertiary effects of attempting to communicate. We haven't even really gotten into when you actually are trying to communicate how meaning gets lost. And already we've seen so many ways to miscommunicate. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. There's a metaphor that I wanted to, to draw on for some of this, which is one of the problems I consistently run into in ethics, and it applies here in communication, and it applies in relationships is that almost everyone thinks that they are experts at these things simply because they can do mm. these things. That is not the case. Yes. Everyone I know can draw. If I was like, draw this person, I'd get some stick figure variant up to a good drawing, up to some major parts of that person being right from anybody that I asked. But that doesn't make any of you like Michelangelo. Right. Yeah. Right. Anybody can draw to save their life. That's true, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. like basic stuff like, can you do a, a quick sketch of the person that mugged you kind of stuff, where you do like right. some basic outlines and the basic eyes. Like, you can you can draw enough to communicate. People draw all the time, like, where in the house do you want to put this? Okay, well, I'll draw the room out and I'll draw where mm -hmm. the furniture's going to go. That's how I think about people's normal engagement in ethics, relationships, and speaking, which is the, the very fact that one can spend all day, every day, pulling research papers and books and reading them and still see a pile that would take three lifetimes to read behind it tells me that you're not experts on this topic unless you are actually at the you know the standard expert rule is 40,000 applied hours yeah so unless you've actually done or no sorry 10,000 10, hours 10,000 so unless you've actually done 10,000 hours of reading research and applied direct practice on relationships applied ethics right <laughs> uh communication then you're probably not experts in those areas right. Not 10,000 hours communicating, yeah. but 10,000 hours learning about learning, communicating. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm good, at, I'm good at breathing and I'm decent at holding my breath, but there are guys that can hold their breath like 10 minutes or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. You know, so by comparison, I'm just, yeah, I'm just nothing, right? But if you were like, do you hold your breath well? I'm like, yeah, I'm better than most people, but I'm not an expert in breath right. holding. Yeah, just because you've been breathing your entire life no. over 10,000 hours doesn't mean you're an expert at it. I'm pretty right. baller at breathing. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that. There are so many amazing systems in breathing, like pramayanas and martial arts breathing and uh, <laughs> holding your breath for ten minutes and building. And you can build avioli content by jogging and stuff. That's, like goodness, it can, it's crazy. Yeah, you can actually almost double your lung capacity through practice breathing. Almost anything that you can think of, you can be an amazing expert on, and it feels like you don't need to be to weigh in on it. That's why you're probably listening to a podcast about these sorts of things, as you recognize there are more places to be. But I don't think people often sort of consciously get the gap. They know they could do better and they but they don't necessarily understand what that space mm. looks like and so people think they're communicating they think they're good at communication and because humans as a general rule tell how good we are by comparing ourselves to people around us you may actually be the best communicator that you personally know and still be barely scratching the surface of the kind right. of levels of communication that's available yep. to you. That, and even if you're a really good communicator, you can still get better. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You can't be perfect. Right. I mean, Michael Phelps breaks his records all yeah. the time. So even if you are good, you can get even better. Mm -hmm. So I think right. that's really true. But the point was just more that you can be known for being the best communicator even in your group and actually be like not really impressive at communicating as far as what's available as far as the tools of communication yes. that are out there. Yes. Right. So now to look at how communication, regular communication, is working and why it can be so difficult. I have not been able to nail down any two people to tell me really coherently the meaning of the sentence, especially if you have a non-context meaning of a sentence like, I love you out of context. What does it mean if someone says, I love you? Well, <laughs> that depends on a yeah. lot of things. Yes. And that's, as we've noted, probably because it doesn't even have the kind of definition you think it has. It has a function instead of a definition. Right. <laughs> and then it has context. Yeah. So when you think about language as 
functions instead of information, then you can see it's much easier to understand how context plays into it. Right. So again, if someone's in a room and you say, can you turn on that light switch? And there's like a hundred light switches and you're not pointing to any and they're not near any. That's not a useful attempt at communication. You're not going to get the outcome you wanted. You have to start specifying. <laughs> and, and you see that context when you say it. Right? Like, ooh, they're not going to know which light switch I mean. Right. Uh, which gets into all sorts of fun linguistic games. Like someone at a party is setting up tables and you ask them, can you get a blue chair? And they leave the room and they come back with a blue chair, but not the blue chair you saw in the hallway. And you're mad at them for getting not the blue chair because this chair isn't as blue uh, as the other chair. They should have uh, known. Should've known. <laughs> yeah, and they should have known. That's not blue, that's <laughs> yeah, turquoise. Seriously. Turquoise yeah. isn't blue. But interestingly, if they didn't see the blue chair, the turquoise chair appears to be the most blue chair and they feel comfortable grabbing it. But if they'd seen both, then they might have grabbed the, you know, the dark blue chair. So context becomes super important because they didn't notice the dark blue chair. They took the bluest chair and were very confident in their choice until it turned out there was a bluer chair they didn't notice. And so what happens once you do develop a theory of mind, you start theorizing what information they would have in their brain when you talk at them. And so Mm -hmm. when you're trying to get someone to do something, by and large, humans always attempt to do anything in the lowest energy way possible. As you can tell from literally any philosophy book, you can write 2,000 pages to ask a question, like a single question, like what is a beta fish? You could write 2,000 pages describing what is a beta fish if you wanted, and you'd get a much more coherent answer than if I tried to explain it in five pages or two sentences or one sentence. However, based on background knowledge, that may not be necessary. So if we were at a store and I need you to get me a beta fish, I might be able to say, get me the blue beta fish, and you would successfully do it because I expect that you have background knowledge about what is a beta fish. But if you've never, ever seen any beta fish, you might actually need like 40 or 50 pages of background knowledge to get you close enough in pure linguistic description to get Mm -hmm. the right thing. And so where most communication breaks down is a misunderstanding about what background knowledge people are quote unquote supposed to have. And that's also where the moral indignation comes from. So how did you not get the blue chair? Like a a feeling that they failed at due diligence. If you just looked around the room, you would have seen there were two chairs that were blue and one was darker. But that's an assumption about the way that things are supposed to work. That other person might be preferencing speed where you preference thoroughness. So they ran out and grabbed the first blue chair they could find because they thought that was the most important thing. Whereas you were upset they didn't get the bluest and most true blue chair. Right. Are we talking about assumptions and expectations, Michael? (laughs) Yes, I am. But in metaphors of chairs. But not just assumptions and expectations. I mean, there are assumptions and expectations, but they're buried. That's the thing about that that I'm trying to get to. It's not an assumption and expectation in the normal, in what I think of as being the normal way. They're literally built into the way language works because language is more efficient when you subconsciously assume all the background knowledge you think the other person has. That's what's great about language. It's speed. Mm -hmm. But when it gets to navigating incredible Mm -hmm. complex situations like other people's emotional needs and your goal is to use language to help them and yourself have the healthiest, happiest life you can have. It behooves no one to assume anything. Right. Right. Yep. <laughs> and it's that same sort of self-critical labor that we talk about all the time where you have to go, all right, when I say... It's like dating. So we're dating. Yeah, sure, we're dating. And when like two weeks go by, neither of you really know what that means to the other person. Yes. Yes. Because you just assume that dating to him means what Mm -hmm. dating to you means. Yes. Right. But you probably should sit down and talk about it because it's probably not the same thing. We're probably talking more about like two different breeds of cats as opposed to just cats in general. Oh my goodness. I think that that is one of the hardest points in a relationship is to really break down what the other person's culture and background is so you can have common language to describe the relationship and describe the goals of the relationship so it's like right after you like have established interest and you've started to like gain some flirtation you're trying to define like what it is where you're going that it just oh i hate it it's annoying i don't like it necessary i know everyone's you're going to be super surprised. I suggest the philosophical approach of just redefining the term from scratch. If you ever read a philosophy book, they'll start with going, all right, we're going to use this word. We're going to use right. it to mean, and then they give this you know, big definition. So like, right. instead of going, hey, do you want to date now? Do you want to be dating mm-hmm. now? You should say you know, something like, I think that what we're doing would often be labeled as dating. Mm-hmm. But what I would like to do is sit down and describe what dating means to us and use that as our definition for what we're doing and that we can relate to Amen. other people with. Right. And then you define dating from the starting point, point by point, so that the expectations are clear. Like in dating, in my experience, is, is a buzzword for meaning non-exclusive. But 
a huge subsection of monogamous people only date one person at a time and sort mm-hmm. of use that as a test for like moral character mm-hmm. of the other monogamous people they're dating that if they're the kind of monogamous person that dates multiple people then they're not really <laughs> like a good monogamous yeah. person but all that's based on expectations if you come from a culture where everyone who dates dates multiple people it would never even occur to you that you're failing morally because you don't know that you've made that deal or that you even could be making that deal like the idea that it may be exclusive, maybe not exclusive, doesn't even occur to you without that discussion. Right. And that's not a helpful way to engage. And then, of course, that just keeps propagating through multiple relationships. So you have a partner. You start dating a new partner. And you and your new partner go, we're dating. And you go home and go, hey, I'm dating someone new. And you didn't set any of that information. So what you mean and what the other person mean and what you guys share context looks like gives you maybe right. more idea than other people, but then you go home and tell your partner and they have a different shared context, maybe only mm-hmm. venting, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> if you're making some serious <laughs> communication errors, maybe venting you didn't even tell them was venting if you're making really serious communication errors mm-hmm. and you say you're dating. And that gives them a whole third perspective that can cause like, all sorts of explosions mean? over mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah. Right. Any relationship yes. label. Right. Uh, Girlfriend, partner, nesting partner, dating, married, literally every relationship label is one of those ones that, depending on your cultural background, has a dossier that goes with it easily a thousand pages long that is different from everyone else's cultural background but your specific cultural background. I only know for sure what those words mean, I swear it's this specific, for white, middle-class, northern Lutherans. (laughs) If you are not <laughs> that, then I don't know what you're talking about when you say dating. <laughs> but it's not, and it's general... not just relationship labels. It's it's other things in relationships too, like public displays of affection. Well, I mean, everything's always better to talk about before it happens if you can. Setting expectations is always emotionally easier than managing perceived failures. Right. Yes. Because if I'm not told what's going to happen, then I'm dealing with an emotional response and I'm already tied up in it and it's deep and it's hard. So like, you know about the PDA stuff? I had a partner who wasn't comfortable with public displays of affection. I mean, I mean down to like hand holding and like really like kissing in places that specifically had kids because they perceived that other people's parents, mostly moms, were made uncomfortable and were judging them when they did that. Hmm. We didn't talk about that, and we had done things like hold hand and kiss in public before. It was still pretty new in our relationship, so it was still doing the sort of, we're not 100% explicit about what we're doing because we are not 100% sure. And we went on a date in a public place that had kids, and I didn't know any of this. And so I tried to take her hand, and she wouldn't take my hand all night. And I thought she was mad at me and didn't want to date me anymore and was upset at me. (laughs) So then at the end of the night, I was like, hey, I have been feeling this all night. I am really worried about this. Is this okay? And of course, because I was able to communicate that, we were able to work past that. And she was like, oh, I'm so glad you told me. No, it's not about you. It's all about me. But it's expectations, right? I am from a very both bohemian and sex positive and just lucky in their careers in the sense that we can basically do whatever we want without any kind of repercussions from any of our bosses community where i'm used to like you know doing whatever i want that's not illegal Mm -hmm. like for me pda is anything up to where the law will drag me off and then maybe (laughs) as long as it's still questionable i'm still going to do that like as long as it's not a clear-cut case but i'm so used to the people that i'm with being in that community you know and so you're right so if you don't have a conversation about like what does pda mean to you Right. Right. You're going to have these miscommunications. It just goes back to the whole, our language being convenient, because we do assume that people know uh, core information. But because of culture, we don't know the same core information. Mm -hmm. Our core language really isn't that core. It's only core to our immediate community or our immediate culture. Everybody in Wisconsin knows what a pop is, but you go to Texas and ask for a pop and they're going to look at you funny. Right. Yeah, I have a fun story about that. (laughs) In uh, Rochester, I might get these backwards, but I think I have it right. A pop is what I would call a soda, Mm -hmm. you know, any kind of carbonated beverage. And a soda is specifically an ice cream float. Hmm. Right. Interesting. When my mom went to college for the first time, she went a little bit more south than she'd been. And when she got there and the girls were showing her around the dorm, they told her that they had a soda machine in the basement. And my mom started freaking out. (laughs) 
she was so excited to have a soda machine in the basement. Yeah. Right? That's the coolest thing. What? You've got a root beer float machine in the basement. That'd be amazing. (laughs) And so she's freaking out. And these people are like, what? Where did she come from? Backwards that a, that town. A soda machine from? is exciting yeah. to her. That's so ridiculous. Yeah. How crazy is this? Goodness. And it seems like a really simple communication. You used a, a word that means a specific mm-hmm. thing in your specific context that's very obvious, and the other person thought you meant nothing related to what you said. Right. Yeah. Goodness. And through no one's fault of no one's fault at all. We've been talking about this as an evolved function. When humans were evolving, we lived in tiny, close-knit communities we never left. Mm-hmm. Right. So the cultural context would actually be set in such a way that language never had to deal with it during an evolutionary perspective. Mm-hmm. Which is part of the reason why we feel at like an innate interior level that when we communicate and the other person doesn't understand the word, the context that we're using, that they're wrong. Because yeah. it's ridiculous that they don't understand that context, which it would be if they were from your own tribe. Right. Not that that would justify being mad at them, but it would be a safe assumption that someone who grew up in your tribe of 40 total people for their entire life knows exactly all the weird, tiny, idiosyncratic words you use. Right. Right, yeah. They all know the same stories. You've all heard the same creation myths. You all know everything about the same people. You all know what Grandma Esther did. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, whatever Long that context that rock, looks like. rock, rock. <laughs> yeah. And so we have to deal with all those sort of built-in instincts which say that people around us who are in our important circle, people we're dating, should know all these things. And more and more we're living in a world where you date and befriend basically cultural strangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is not a bad thing. No. No, it's a great thing. Yeah. yeah. It's Diversity's really awesome. interesting and fun. Yeah. But you need to remember it when communicating. It's a stressor Precisely. on communication yeah. and language. It creates a new burden that didn't exist before. Mm. Alright, I'm giving you a uh I'm giving you a, a warning, a, a time warning. Yeah, I think that's about right. So I think here's the last thing we'll wrap up on then. We'll we'll talk about this. Until I was like 27, the goal for me was to get people that like would do what I wanted without having to ask. Like, that's how I know you know me. Like, that's how I know you pay attention to me. That's how I know that you get me. Which is a really common perspective, which is why you even said, don't expect people to read your minds. Like, maybe you don't do that, but you know that it's sort of a consistent thing that people do. They get mad that you didn't just know. Like, have you ever heard the sentence, and it's in a lot of movies, you should know what I want without having to ask. Mm. If there's a takeaway from this, they shouldn't know what you want, even if you ask. Yeah. Unless you ask in a long-form dossier. To include definitions and cultural (laughs) references. Yeah, include all of that, break it all down. Right. Footnotes, all that stuff. So expecting them to know what you want without doing that, if they didn't grow up like a block down the street from you in identical cultural context, is just crazy. Mm, Right. And some people are good at doing that and they'll learn that stuff, but it's not a default human trait that you should expect or that you should tie to that person's value of you. Yeah, all right. So I think a lot of good theory there, I think, that you can apply if you're into that. I think we covered the things you can do if you are not looking for theory, but just specific things. Don't expect partners to read your mind. Oh, don't white knight people. And then preface what you're trying to do in communication as often as possible. Oh, and uh, let's see, also four, I think, was define your terms, no matter what your terms are, whenever you have terms. Yeah, don't assume they know what you're talking about. Don't assume that dating means dating to them. Don't assume cultural context are the same. Right. So our episode for next time is a great piggyback off off of this one. And is also one that Mandy has been suggesting and playing around with on her own personal page, which is she wanted us to talk about what does commitment mean to people? What's the definition of commitment? What does commitment mean to you? Talk about a term you should define with your partners before yes. you get too deep into things. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Before you start before using you start it. start using it. <laughs> before you say, we're committed. We have a commitment. So join us know next what time you're talking for about. definition of commitment. What does commitment mean to you? Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you.